Thank you for listening to the Smoke Hole Sessions. They were inspired by my new book, Smoke Hole, Looking to the Wild in the Time of the Spyglass, which is available from all good bookshops. So imagine if someone said to you, you are the geese of winter flying over deep sea and you are that sea also, serene under the moon. You are hanging bells of heather on the high crag. You are a green lake in the shadow of a mountain. You are the night stars and the forest under those stars. Braid your life to mine. I hope you heard that because there's a lot of rural emanations. I heard a tree collapse as I was saying that. I can hear my friend Dan's chainsaw working for the Eye of Sauron. I can hear a rural conversation over the wall. But I love those kind of words. And something in me as I get older becomes really distrustful of the way we tend to talk to each other these days. It's become so psychological, it's become so conditional. Everything is conditional, everything is bounded. You know, that word uh, we're also frightened of, projection. You know, the old word for projection is rapport. Rapport is beautiful and without it, not much is gonna happen. So I wonder if we could talk to each other in a new or different way. We learn to understand things by psychology in a way of kind of breaking them down or reducing them or turning the heat down a little. And that is useful. But my experience of myth has been entirely different. It brings its education by amplification, makes things bigger, more flamboyant, wilder, and in a way, in its, in its elevation, in its inflation, it makes it easier to see. Maybe we're not projecting when we look at someone and suspect they are the bright pulse of our whole understanding. Maybe they are the sky woman of the dawn. Maybe it's not our projection, but it's maybe something that radiates through them. And the older I get, the less I want to come out and play unless a little bit of that is in the mix. I should probably mention that in my first conversation with Tommy, we, or he actually, talked about someone called John Moriarty. And in my absorption in what Tommy was saying, I forgot to mention that for the last year, I have actually been compiling an anthology of the work of Moriarty and writing commentaries and kind of divvying them up into little sections of his work. There'll be a book called A Hut at the Edge of the Village. And if you're interested in the deep dive to Moriarty, Tommy wrote the foreword. I put the book together, see where you go with it. So I've spoken to Tommy and I've spoken to the wonderful Jay Griffith. And today 
I approach that wild king of the north, the writer David Keenan. Now, if I look at David Keenan's biography for a moment, what do we know about him? Other than he's from the north and that I've never spoken to him before, and he looks like a bit of a rock and roller. He looks like he has a history. <laughs> he looks like he has a dagger somewhere on him. I suspect anything could happen. He has been a music journalist. He's been a musician. He uh, wrote, apparently, a cult classic called This Is Memorial Device. He's won all sorts of prizes. He's written a book called For the Good Times, which is a staggeringly alarming and beautiful book about uh, an imaginary subscription in the IRA. And the most recent book of his I've he's written, There Goes the Chainsaw, Exterbeth. Can you hear that? It's good, isn't it? Some sort of Grendel wandering around outside the meat hall. So I'm going to be talking to him. And I also have a shameful secretive past in music. So this could be the moment where we plunge into it. Well, in the spirit of the music of what is, let's jump in. David, together at last. <laughs> Amazing. So good to see us, man. You are even more handsome <laughs> and skullduggery in the virtual flesh. <laughs> I saw you on the back of your books have been my uncanny companions in this last difficult stretch of lockdown for me. And I thought, well, there's a man with a bit of history tucked under his wings. There's probably a dagger somewhere in his jacket. You know, I, I've described you on the podcast already as King of the North. <laughs> so uh, that's all I can say. So thank you ever so much for spending this time with me. Thank you. And stepping out of your books into the real. Thank you, Mom. So the first and only question I had before we just jumped into it really was reading your, your books as I am, mm -hmm. there are stretches of imagination at play. There are things that you are communicating which are immediately recognisable to me in my kind of animal shape, like an animal reaction. But wait, it takes me a time for my head to catch up with that. Now, how did you give yourself permission for that kind of imagination to exist in your life. Were you born like that or is it something that's happened incrementally? I felt like I had a responsibility to some kind of talent that I was perhaps dimly aware of. And when I was young, I did have the idea that one day I would write books in gratitude for the gift of experience that my particular life had been. I was ve I, I developed a sense of gratitude very early on for the magic of my own existence. Even in a place where some people might think it's hard to be grateful. Um, I was in a situation where, well, I was, uh, I was adopted. So I was, first of all, I was in a children's home. I was then adopted by um, some absolutely magical people, my parents, my mum and dad, who took me in. They were absolutely incredible. Dad was an uh, uh, Irish Catholic who had left Belfast because of the troubles. And uh, my mum was a, a Scottish, uh, she's from Calderbank, a small mining village. And so we, we lived in the East End of Glasgow and then we moved to Airdrie, which is regarded as a pretty rough 
working class town. And it is, and even more so now, is a rough working class town. But yet there was an absolute magic to it. And I was very aware there as I explored the fields of the wildness. This ties in with what you like to talk about as well, Martin. Of the wildness. of so the wilderness seemed barely tamed in Airdrie and accessible on the high street as much as in the fields and the abandoned industrial architecture all around. And I began to feel excited. I began to feel this sort of wild context for the things that were that were rising up in me, like my, my budding sexuality, my interest in literature and poetry and, you know, the, the future. The future was kind of eroticised in some kind of way for me back then as well. And I knew one day I would write in gratitude about this and write about it in a beautiful visionary way rather than a rough working class sort of a social realist way, which is how you deal with these sort of things. And uh, what happened is I began to write. I wrote, I wrote my first novel over a year. I destroyed it as a ritual. And it was the worst thing you've ever read in your life. And I thought to myself, this is when everyone gives up. Everyone gives up when they write this first dismal novel. I'm going to write it hopelessly, destroy it. I smashed my laptop with a hammer ritually and I started again. And that's when I began to realise myself as a writer and realise I was going to be able to do this. But more than that, I realised at a certain point that it was no longer me who was writing the books. Yeah. I had got to the point where I could not in all honesty take responsibility for what was happening in those books. And it was a, a sanity-shattering experience at first. It had the feel of an initiation. And an initiation which where you, where you can be sort of blindsided, where you can be knocked off your rocker a little bit. And I struggled with my sanity during a certain period because it really felt like I was receiving voices. Yeah. But I was having this sort of pronounced, really pronounced disconnect, which I was then able to sort of uh, uh, reconcile as a sort of... um. I realised that I was mis-seeing or mis-experiencing my own experience. I began to realise that even now as I'm talking to you, I have no idea what I'm going to say. There is not a separate person thinking this up, choosing it and then broadcasting it. It is simply arising in the moment of you and I being together. And I began to realise, well, this is what all consciousness is like. That if you go deep on writing, you literally experience it. Because I think what happens is you can almost write your way beyond words and experience the thing as it is without a word. Perfect. I was thinking as you were talking about W.B. Yeats, mm -hmm. and they all said about Yeats, in comparison to his friend A.E. Russell, who was a, a real mystic, mm -hmm. Yeats, if he met a spirit, he wouldn't just be at its mercy, he'd interrogate it, <laughs> which I loved. Yeah. And you know, Yeats and Crowley didn't get on yeah, yeah. In, the same yeah. in the same magical order briefly. Mm -hmm. So there is this feeling in the chthonic of your books, in the great underbelly of what's happening, in the beauty and the dread that for me stagger along through them. Mm -hmm. I, I often have a feeling that some, I'm almost terrified to turn the page. <laughs> Tell me about your relationship to magic and what variety, strand, garden, you know, garden variety, what, where's it taken you over the years? Well, this is an interesting discussion and I'd like to hear maybe a little bit about your background and interest in that as well. I mean, sure. I think it came early on. I mean, early on, I, I was a huge science fiction fantasy and horror a, a fan and I would get with like, the Peter Haining uh, books out of the, the library that compiled that would have things like M.R. James and ghost stories and things like that and I think I inevitably read maybe even maybe it was it Moonchild or, or Diary of a Drug Fiend something like that and, and and fell for it completely and loved the language and then fell for the whole story of, of Crowley and, and probably had a pretty superficial reading of it at the time you know but came back to it again and again and again 
And something began something began to click with me, with Crowley specifically. And I think it was his idea of how he redefined change. He redefined change as love. And it kind of blew my mind when he did that. I thought it was absolutely beautiful because he, redef he makes you feel that everything is longing to change and what it is not. And it's a sort of love play. So even as change continues, it's a beautiful way of reconciling change and it shows you the sort of alchemy, the alchemy of language. Again, you point to something and you get to the thing in itself somehow using language as if language is a precipice from which you can see this no thing. And Crowley redefined that so well to me and it made so much sense. And I had a great sense of liberation after taking that on board because I felt it to be true. It didn't feel to me like, I mean, being a Taurus, I am a Taurus and I am definitely very grounded, rooted, earthed, not into sort of woolly-minded mysticism or anything like that. I'm absolutely allergic to any of these sort of big claims. But Crowley seemed instinctively to sort of get it right. So eventually I uh, I became friends with Hymenaeus Beta, who is the current head of the, the, the OTO. His name is Bill Breeze. And um, I, I was friends with him through the group Coil, who had written a book about it. So I interviewed Bill Breeze about it. And of course, we got talking about the OTO. And he said, if you're ever interested in initiation, there's an interesting group in, in Fife in the east coast of Scotland at the time. And I thought, wow, I mean, this is such a... I just, I was, I was going through this period as well where I was just saying yes to things. If something came up and was in front of me, it was there for a reason. So I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. So I, I ended up being initiated into the, the OTO. And I was in the OTO for quite a while. I was in the OTO for maybe, probably at least six years. At one point, I was I co-started and co-ran the first ever oasis in, in Glasgow that the, the OTO had ever had. But I haven't come here to praise the OTO. I have ultimately come to damn it because um, I, I didn't, I didn't find much magic there. I kept hanging on because I had a sort of loyalty to the ideas and I'd felt them transform in my own uh, 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 life. But what I began to realise is that the sort of people who are attracted to the OTO are people for whom it's very difficult to actually have some kind of enlightenment experience because the reason they're attracted to the OTO is, is normally about bolstering who they are. You know, And one of the things I came to realise is that it's identity itself that gets in the way that gets in the way of experience. It's identity itself that gets in the way of, of transformation. It's identity itself that closes down and makes the world a small, narrow thing that is not you. And, and, and as long as you're involved in magic because you're a magician, then I just, I, I think you're just bolstering your identity rather than working to, to get rid of it altogether. Because I always say, what's the first, what's the first uh, great magic power? It has to be invisibility, classically. And I always think, well, if you announce yourself as a magician, how can you ever be invisible? <laughs> I think you have to be able to move in any group to not see yourself as, as as sort of like that type of experience is not for me, but this is. And then you realise you're actually, your identity comes from everything that's happening. That is literally what you are. And these were the revelations I came to through magic, but not through the OTO. And have you ever been involved in, in an actual practice in magical group or? No, right. no, I haven't. I, I came to it... And, and, you know, magic, as you'll be fully aware, is such a massive word. Yeah. There's such a sort of a gradient of practices. No, I'm, I'm, I'm probably a sort of secret pagan Christian in disguise. Maybe <laughs> I'm, a, I'm probably a spy for God, but I barely admit it. I was always aware of the porosity of consciousness. And I grew up in a house with, you know, access to a vast wood behind it. And in the middle of this wood was a hospice. Mm -hmm. So when I was young, I always thought the sound of the beech trees in the wind 
was the groaning of the dying people. Wow. And so there was this peculiar uh, relationship that I had to forests. And when I was about 23, by which point I'd been, you know, punk rock, hardcore drummer for years and had finally clawed my way into a situation where I was making a living. The day I got the contract with Warner Brothers, my wife left on literally almost within an hour of signing it as a young lad. Wow. So I end up in a... Wow. I end up in a men's hostel in Twickenham. Pete Townsend is across the road, though I rarely see him. And I'm suddenly in a terribly unpleasant situation. I'm living above a garage where cars are dismantled day and night, packages are delivered. This is long before internet, long before phones home. So once a fortnight, I go to this little red phone box and I ring anybody that cares for me because it's a desperate moment. And my pal Gavin, who was living up in Scotland at the time, said, I am going to take myself up to Cudder Idris in Snowdonia in Wales, where they say if you spend a night on top of it, you come down mad, dead or a poet. And I'm going to empty myself of food for four days and nights and see what the music of what is. Let's have a let's have a peer Mm -hmm. under under the fucking, you know, the bonnet. And. It was one of those moments where I believed in the great sound. I jumped into the thing and I went with him in a small group. And it wasn't just us. There were no visionary vegetables involved. There was nothing like that. We're just a small group with a a very experienced leader who understood this kind of thing. And somewhere in the middle of the last night of that encounter, I hit the mysteries and the mysteries hit me. Mm-hmm. And I, I crawled out of it, went back to, to, you know, the outskirts of London and quite without any pharmaceutical need, those experiences continued for about five years. And the problem at the time was the kind of energies that flood through you are not necessarily engaged with your, you know, best psychological interests all the time. They're looking at you to be a vehicle of something. Mm -hmm. And so in other words, you've got to find a joyful work quick. And that took some time and I ended up living in a tent for four years and moving from sort of one British hill after another, trying to keep my head focused on what had flipped open on the top of this Welsh hill. Mm -hmm. And... Everything post that sort of apocalyptic moment, that Book of Revelations moment, has been an attempt to be a good servant to the information that I got. I come from school, no qualifications, nothing like that, worked in factories and then just fell into punk rock, really, Mm -hmm. which I love to this day. But I had to leave all of that. One of the things is I have terrible tinnitus. So all the time there's the shrieking from the drums. Mm. It was like like being left permanently with the applause I always wanted but never got (laughs) in my head. So I lived in my tent with the shriek and figuring out what am I going to do because... These wilderness encounters, it's odd. I I just presumed by now the British wilderness was too damaged, 
had hurt feelings, mm -hmm. was not going to open its door in that old primordial shamanic way. Mm -hmm. And the news, of course, I report quarter of a century later, is that you can walk in and out of centuries very easily. Oh, yes. It's all still available. Oh, yes. The difficulty now is what to do with an encounter like that when you come back to Deptford yep. mm -hmm. or Croydon, where the culture at large has a kind of an amnesia or an active hostility to this peculiar wolf speak mm -hmm. that you now have. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't at the time have the facility uh, to know how to communicate that. And it's through myths and stories and fairy tales, I suddenly realized this is the way I can talk about the sheer esoteria of these experiences without becoming... I, I, unlike Nick Cave, I didn't want to become a cult leader particularly. <laughs> no, nor did I. And two, <laughs> I didn't want too many I statements in it. Yeah. I, I wanted... Something else happens in a room where you say, once upon a time, there was a vast forest and a young girl. And so bit by bit by bit, I suppose my experience of magic has been centered around those kind of encounters out in the bush, mm -hmm. out in the bush. Mm -hmm. The strange thing, though, was, as I said, coming back and realizing that things like that could happen in a garden in the south of London, they could have they could yes. happen in a kitchen, they could happen mid-conversation. So in other words, I had to let go of the word wilderness to a degree and accept the word wildness, because mm -hmm. wildness is everywhere. It is in little flats, mm -hmm. and people go through enormous hermetic initiatory experiences, uh, you know, living in the spare room of their parents. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a little bit about magic from my side the Crowley thing and I do you remember there's Watkins books in London oh, yeah. uh -huh. that was a place that Crowley was related to and Yates of course was in there and uh -huh. Ted Hughes was in there Ted Hughes is the kind of patron crow of this part of the country he used to fish in the river just outside the cottage where I live but um when I read you I get this thrill that something unexpected is happening to me and somehow on the one hand you have allowed as you say you've allowed yourself to get written mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you get written mm -hmm. but on the other hand you obviously have good editorial chops <laughs> so in other words it's got shape alchemists go crazy when they don't have a shape for their experiments. There's this wonderful alchemical phrase, the vas bene clausum, the well-sealed vessel. Mm -hmm. And if the vessel isn't sealed right, you're just bonkers. Totally agree. And so what I'm enjoying with your work is the vas bene clausum of it. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's hard, it's, and none of it's conscious either, but you can just feel when the book is the right shape. Even if parts of the book itself, you're still don't fully understand. I know I get to the point when the book 
has kind of been birthed. But rolling back a little bit when we're talking about the occultist, I do not want to come across as an occultist because... No, you don't. I, it's, it's been an interest in my past and it still is. My major spiritual uh, interests are, are, are Zen and Christianity. I mean, I grew up as a Christian. I went to Bible school for um, most of my childhood. Um, the Bible was a presence most of my life. It still is. I still attend church. I, I, I probably would still describe myself as a Christian, ultimately. And Christian iconography matters a lot to me. But thinking about you, your experience, and it's similar to mine, come about in, in, in different ways. One of the things I found hardest to come to terms with was the scale of it, the enormity of it, because I felt it was the first time I understood what a calling is. And you need to be a little bit unhinged to go on a calling or to think you're even up for being able to have a calling. You know, and I think, can this, can, is this real? Uh, do, uh, do I really have a calling on this level where I, where I am transcribing thoughts seemingly from the air, where, where, where consciousness seems to be speaking and consciousness wants to tell a story via me? Yeah, and that's what I find every time. It wants to tell a story and I have to listen. And so I had an encounter in Mexico. I spent a lot of time in, in, in Latin America, uh, in South America, um, a year and a half ago or something like that, in Colombia, but mostly in Mexico, which is one of my absolute spiritual homes. Um, and I had an encounter with uh, Metatron, the angel Metatron, in a, a market in Mexico City. I just came across a, an image and I, I said to the woman who was selling it, is that an image of Metatron? And she was like, yes. And I remember thinking that Metatron is kind of God's own writer, God's own scribe. He stands behind the throne of God and he takes down everything that happens. And I began to realise this was the scale of what I was stepping into. A sort of Metatron position where I was taking down everything that the universe was speaking and the stories that it wanted to speak. And then so I had to learn to become a good listener because you can just be listening to babble. You can just be listening to your, your own mind, which is constantly talking rubbish and that whole left brain muttering, planning, worrying in the future or the past, but never now. So I'd have to make sure I wasn't listening to those voices. I'd have to make sure I was listening to the voice of now, the voice of is. And it would often talk in a strange uh, grammar, which is going back to Crowley and Yeats. It felt like these transmitted texts, like Book of the Law, uh, like a vision. Something was talking and I had to learn how to listen to it correctly, like John Dee and Edward Kelly as well. But as you become a, a, a better listener, I find now that I can pretty much tune in straight away. So it means that I, I only think about writing when I'm actually writing, because otherwise you're invaded all day with voices and stories that want to be told and voices because they know that you're here. They know that you'll transcribe. They know you're a reliable scribe. You know, you're that, that Metatron level. So sometimes I would honestly feel that it was a queue of entities standing behind me. And sometimes I would start to, you know, during the period of deep initiation, I would start to catch entities in my in my house or walking past the door. I have no belief in ghosts. I'm a total taurine in terms of that. But I felt the undeniable presence of legions of entities. And then when I finished my last book, it's called Monument Maker. It's coming out in August of this year. And it's a huge book. I worked on it for about 10 years. And part of the book is concerned with a man who goes missing during the evacuation of Crete in the Second World War, who, who's presumed dead. But what happens is he's actually rescued. And through some kind of weird system, he ends up having a face transplant of a completely new face. And he crosses back across the whole of Europe in the wake of the World War. He goes back to his wife, who presumes he was dead, and he remarries her in secret without revealing that he is the husband returned. 
And I had no idea why I was writing this book. Only when I finished it, I was completely and utterly overwhelmed and I realised that I'd been led by the dead, that there was traffic with the dead and the dead were making me write this book to return them and to, and to write their stories. And then I remembered that my grandmother had lost her husband in the Battle of Crete. And when I was very young, she always maintained that he hadn't died, that he would merely, he banged his head and lost his memory and he was still alive somewhere. And she never gave that up until she died. And I began to think, my God, this grandfather that I never knew was operating through me and all the other dead. They disappeared, I called them, because they weren't dead, they were disappeared. So they needed me to write their story in order to be dead. I was completely overwhelmed by the nature of my task. I'm just like, you know, this is what I mean by, can I really do this? You know, can I really do this? That's when you need to start to ground yourself. That's when you need to start to have rules. And that's when you need to start to say, I will only deal with you at certain times. In the meantime, I will not listen, you know, and then when it's time to speak, you can speak and then you must stop. Because for a while I couldn't stop. I literally couldn't stop. And we all know that the definition of madness is literally voices in your head. What, what has been the price tag? over the years of this kind of thing? That's an interesting question. I mean, I felt early on that I had to dedicate my entire life to the culture that I loved, which is, like you are saying, music, literature, poetry. Like you, I've never, I've never actually been homeless, but I, don't, I think up until perhaps three years ago, I'd never earned anything over a minimum wage at max. And a lot of other things been really desperately poor. Um, and at one point, it was quite incredible. Before I, my uh, Faber, Lee Braxton at Faber, bought my first novel. This is Memorial Device. I was actually eating from a food bank. I had run, I'd run a business that that because of the crash in two thousand and eight was a. Um, just was, wasn't viable anymore. I had to close that down. Um, I was unable to get benefits because they claimed I was a freelance writer. So I was still theoretically working, although, although earning nothing. But they went me go to a food bank. And um, I was one month away from having my house repossessed when Faber bought my first novel. It was just one of those absolutely insane things. And I always remember there's an old abandoned tennis court near our our allotment and I remember one day we'd just been at the food bank and we'd walked up to the tennis court and we're playing on this old rough tennis court and I was thinking obsessively about a, an aspect of one of my books obsessively and I caught myself and I said to myself you know you're an absolute lunatic your life is falling apart you're about to lose your home you can barely eat and you're sitting fussing over this mad book that will never ever be published and two or three weeks later was when Faber made an offer on it and that, so one thing I realised then was that you have to trust your madness. But you have to know it's your deep madness, it's your true madness speaking. There are a lot of trivial madnesses, there are a lot of neurotic madnesses that are really not worth paying attention to. But when your true madness rears its head, you have to trust it. So actually, we're moving from madness to the miraculous very quick. <laughs> I'm, a big, I'm a big believer in the miraculous because I've been such a, a, a joyful receiver of it over the years mm -hmm. and it's something mm -hmm. that comes up when i hear too much doom and gloom about climate emergency yep. one of the things that ticks me off is a that's crippling for younger people mm -hmm. to hear that for children you've got to keep children away from that shit totally agree. and secondly you're no longer leaving room for the uncanny and the miraculous and what i love about what you're saying and you seem in, you're so lucid and you're so deeply sane <laughs> and you're so clearly in very very good health <laughs> well, well, well it's funny you say that i just had a full health checkup 
yesterday because I'm going up for my 50th yes. and got absolute old queer. So I am partying hard. <laughs> Good man. <laughs> now you, as I, I said this just before we turned the recorder on, you are very slightly my senior, but both of us have got big birthdays mm -hmm. this year. Mm -hmm. Any plans for 50? And how do you feel about it? Is it significant or is it nothing? It only kicked in for me when it became the month of my 50th birthday. Then, yeah, it hit me harder than I expected because, you know, you only get so many begin-agains. And that's a big thing for me. Through my, all through my life, I've begun again, I've begun again, I've begun again. Things have been beginning. But now you realise that there are only so many more begin-agains left. And there are many things that will never be repeated. So I do. I fell into quite a melancholy mood. I'm, I, I'm not really nostalgic, but I did begin to feel quite melancholy. But then I sort of flip it on its head. And like you, I mean, it's about gratitude. So then I think, wow, I have had a half century of absolutely incredible experiences. Incredible experience. And you talk about the uncanny, I mean, and the miraculous. One thing that worries me, as you say, about the current political discourse, it's so negative. The best thing you can be is a protester. Now, I understand there is a place for protest and things can be fought for. But the idea that the apex of what you can achieve in your life is to be against something strikes me as deeply, deeply unhealthy. And you know what? If you're going to wait until everything has been solved, until you, we have solved the puzzle of suffering and you've birthed the perfect utopia before you can actually decide that you're going to witness to the miracle, that you accept the world and its uncanny beauty, then you never will. You never will. There is no stopping place. Death cannot be legislated out of existence. And we should be glad for that as well because without endings... As I was talking about, there are no beginnings. Endings are an absolute gift. And I also think we'd be bored out of our mind with the idea of everlasting life. I just don't fancy it. I have a deep faith that the way life is set up is kind of perfect. People say, well, what do you mean? I mean, my, my dad died and my brother, uh, you know, is in jail and this guy got shot. And I'm like, yeah. My dad's dead, you know, and I still claim it as perfect. I had a lot of suffering in my life and I'm still grateful for it because what I want most of all, I guess, and what I think I've had, luckily enough, is I've had a half century of adventure, of incredible adventure, incredible highs and crushing lows. And I, I literally thank God for it. I thank God for it because I could never have thought it up myself. <laughs> and, you know... Th the idea of thanking God, my, my new book is dedicated to the glory of God because I began to realise that if you had your own way, your life would be so boring. Yes. You know, you would never have a single adventure if you had it your own way. So thank God that you don't. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. I, I to some degree, am kind of crawling to the end of my 40s. Although in the public eye, there's been success of a kind. Mm -hmm. Behind the scenes, all kinds of all kinds of mayhem. <laughs> and one of the things I thought probably in my mid-40s is why great mystery? Why, you know, why do you deprive me of the things that I most pray for? Mm. And of course, it's only now, as I see 50 down down the down the lane, I have to say this, that I have been saved for most of the things I was praying for in my <laughs> mid-40s. 100%. You know. I totally agree. So I, I must admit, like you, I'm sort of encouraged, David, that actually you're taking, you take 50 seriously. 
there's, a, again, thinking of Yeats, my 50th year had come and gone. Uh, and he says, uh, there's a moment, he's sitting in a shop in London and he says, just for a moment, my body blazed and I was blessed and could bless. Mm. And I, I, I love that. And I think if you don't celebrate your own 50 years, there's no guarantee anybody else will. And so, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting you bring up bodies as well because people never talk about of saying goodbye to physical things. But it's only as you get older you realise that you, you, you say goodbye to a certain ideal of bodily perfection <laughs> that you didn't even know you had when you had it. Yeah. You know? I think of I think how beautiful boyhood is. The beautiful bodies of boyhood. I think of, of all the bo- the beautiful bodies of the of the women that I've loved during my life when we were young. And and you, you I think it's right to mourn that because you realize how in, what an incredible gift it was. And you realize what, what what an incredible gift all the experiences when you're telling me about all your experiences, all the mad mm. stories living above that mm. shop and a mm. tent on top of a mountain. I, I I'm thinking lucky bastard you know that sounds amazing you, I mean, what a story what a story how lucky to have that man yeah. you know i agree and i think you know i've written a book called smoke hole recently and one of the things i was saying in the book is in the debris of social media we move in and out of trance states all day long mm-hmm. but if you can just pay attention to the ground right underneath you it's the one bit that the internet can't nick. Mm -hmm. It's life experience. And I I meet so many young guys, especially, who are hankering after, you know, if only I could have an experience of stalking a a lion with the Kalahari Bushman, which of course would be great. (laughs) If only I could be a Mongolian horseman tracking eagles. If only, if only, if only. But if you dig a little deeper into their own strange suburban narrative, there are myths, there are gods, there are visionary encounters, but are you going to give yourself the privilege of taking it seriously or not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that suddenly people start to sort of glow from the inside. When I'm talking to people, I'm often listening to the fairy tale that is hanging on to the thing that they're saying. Mm, that's an interesting point, huh? There's always some little tributary in their predicament that is leading to a creek, which is finally leading to the ocean of humanness, consciousness, and the rest of it. Funnily enough, like you, I also did a health thing. All right. Because I, I mean, I suddenly realised, I thought, Jesus, I've, I've barely raised my voice for a year. I'm in this little cottage. Uh, I haven't gone to a, a doctor for at least a decade. Mm-hmm and went through various rigmaroles and not feeling too bad. Because I I have, I admit, something of the hypochondriac in me, David. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm I'm constantly, you know, morbidity. Morbidity, if I'm too much in my head, takes unnecessary domain. Mm -hmm. Unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And so actually being told you have a big healthy heart, being told that actually you're not about to get diabetes, Mm There was something a bit redemptive in it. Mm. And as I watch my body not having the dignity of its earlier days, I like it like it is now. And I don't know about you, I, 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 like, I like being this age. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I am happier than I've ever been. Yes. Absolutely. I'm, 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 I mean, I know it's probably sick-making to say, but I feel completely happy and <laughs> ut- utterly, utterly fulfilled. And really, I can honestly say I have 
turning 50, I have no regrets. I'm exactly the place I would have liked to be, and I'm exactly the place I want to be turning 50. It's been it's been quite miraculous. I was trying to work out when I felt the first stirrings, or perhaps a second life, because for me it was a second life, and when I really began to take the calling seriously. When I really began to think I might be up to it. And I honestly think it was round about age 37. See, it's a weird key age for me. I don't know if that, wrote, that, wrote, that means anything to you. 37 was when I began to take my calling seriously. My 40s were when I was when I did all the work for it. Yeah. Do you know Carl Jung wouldn't have a client under 35? Is that correct? Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. Carl Jung wouldn't take a client under 35 because, and this is me paraphrasing him, but he said, you know, if you're under 35 and you sign a piece of paper, your signature will just fall off it. <laughs> there's, there's not enough signature yeah. yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's not enough crow markings on the face. And yeah, like you, uh, my life has been sort of uh, chaotic at times, very sort of episodic. Mm -hmm. And when I'm in it, you know, those years in the tent, there was no dream of, and there still isn't, a dream of franchising it or doing anything with it other than having the encounter at the time that was the most compelling. Mm -hmm. uh, but like you, now, suddenly, I do see, I have to say this, I see something of a narrative. I see a story that I couldn't possibly see when I was younger, but it's like, oh, okay, you know, there, there's something into, I don't need, I don't need to break it down into bite-sized chunks, but there's a poet, an American poet called William Stafford. Mm -hmm. And he said, everybody's born with a very fragile little thread they're holding on to. And the point of the thread is not to tug it too hard, but to keep holding it, because in the end it leads to Jerusalem's wall. Mm. At this age, I'm just gently... I tugged it too hard when I was a kid. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of tugging. A lot of tugging. <laughs> Definitely. I wanted to go back a bit, though, because it's such an opportunity to me. I really am intrigued by the music side of all this for you. Mm -hmm. So when I'm 16, just a, just a lad, you know, I have a six... My daughter is 16 in a few days' time. She's a little, wow. uh, little April girl. Wow. Oh, my God. She is, she is the bright pulse of my whole understanding, that, that kid. Wow. But when I was her age, one day these guys in leather jackets came round to the house and they put me in a little, a little van and I was on the road. I was in Europe playing the squats and the punk rock venues wow. in collapsing East Europe. I was in one bit of mischief after another, after another, after another. And this was the kind of punk that you will recognise, as I describe it, that is very far away from this sort of, you know, London clash variety. Mm. This was... The band I was in were a kind of offshoot of a band called The English Dogs, and we, you know, it was exploited, GBH, right, right. broken bones. Mm -hmm. uh, it was not whimsical. Yeah. It was not sweet-natured. It wasn't full of fancy. Because I was a little sort of pre-Raphaelite child, you know. I was, I was wandering around having Arcadian experiences, and suddenly I'm in squats with bands with names like, uh, you know, Ruptured Septum. <laughs> and there's no, at the end of the gig, there's nowhere to sleep but the stage. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and our roadies, you know, with the roadies we would employ, 
had to have the ability to turn a symbol stand into a weapon of mass destruction at any moment. <laughs> I, I, I wonder if people remember how violent the 80s were. Yeah, I mean, before I started going to gigs, people would always warn me, you need to get ready for this. It's not what you expect, you know. It's really, again, um, an initiation. And it was really important for me. I mean, what you're talking about is what I love. What first moved me was definitely the DIY spirit. The idea that you don't wait around for someone else to put your record out or, or publish your book or your magazine or you get it done, you get it out there. That felt so exciting to me, discovering fanzines and then going to these early gags that were put on by other fans and realising, wow, you can build up this culture yourself. It's absolutely incredible. And it's happening right where you live as well. It made the, the whole place around me seem sort of very romantic and exciting. And But I was I loved rock writing. Early on, I, I loved to read about rock music. I loved it because it seemed like a place where it wasn't sort of, it wasn't the cultural police weren't all around there in a way. So you you could actually get pretty experimental with your prose. And that became a big influence on me. And I and I became a music critic, but I never thought of myself as a critic. I always thought of myself as, as an evangelist. And I always wanted to write pieces that were as enjoyable, kind of aesthetically and sensually as the music itself. I didn't really want to interrogate the music. I wanted to present another piece of beauty alongside it because I'm genuinely, I'm not interested in critique. I'm not interested in critiquing things. There are plenty of people doing that and that's absolutely fine. But I think ultimately the role of the, the, the artist, the, the shaman of God's own recording angel, <laughs> whoever you want to talk about it, is, is to say yes. It's to point out all the yes to be had. Because there's a hell of a lot of yes to be had. And we're talking about the presence of the, the, the unknown, the miraculous. It's right in front of you. How is there a thing called David Keenan talking to a thing called Martin Shaw about things called ideas on a planet that floats next to this huge ball of fire called the sun and this endless universe? You know what I mean? And we've, we have partners and we have past histories and music and records existing. It's also wonderful and strange and fantastic. And all you need to do is draw your attention to it. But it's as you make that great point and smoke hole all that thing that people are in a constant state of self-hypnosis. Constant, absolutely. And how do you break that? And if you're in that constant state of self-hypnosis, and this is another question for you, you talk about when these initiatory moments come over you and you, when you're big enough to be able to, to take on that on board, but how do you recognise that? It's very hard to recognise when you're having a genuine revisionary experience where you're getting your deep madness and how do... And I, I sometimes wonder that it, 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 it's rechanneled and manifests itself in different people depending on the, the, the degree to which you're hypnotised, in a way. Yeah, brilliant question, brilliant question, because not every pile of mud has gold in it. Yeah. One of the things that our brothers and sisters in the Gaelic world and the Celtic world and the Scottish world and the Irish world and the Welsh world would tell us is it's one thing to see the world, it's another to behold it. And in my work, the move from seeing to beholding is big. So if I'm seeing a tree, I'm looking at it as a piece of two by four and I'm figuring out how to make a boat out of it. If I'm beholding it, uh, I'm in the terrain of William Blake. Yeah. There's a burning bush everywhere. Yes. And in actual fact, if I keep looking at this bush or this tree for long enough, if I speak sweetly enough to it, I could make it blush. Oh, that's beautiful. When I was living in the tent, a lot of what I was trying to do was give things secret names, praise names. I mean, primarily my work coming towards 50 is as a praise maker now. 
if yeah, if that, that if there's nothing else, that's enough. That's enough. Songs of praise. That's what I keep saying. We need songs of praise. That's lovely. More than ever. <laughs> well, I'll I'll report that to my dear dad who was on Songs of Praise, and I'll say David oh, says hello. Legend. Yeah, he is a he is a legend. <laughs> My dad wow. had a he had a Bible in one hand, but he always whispered to me, "Never forget little Richard. <laughs> never forget, never forget him." Brilliant. So, so how we recognise initiatory experiences is whether we see them or we behold them. Are mm. we sensitised or not? Do we have the mechanisms around us to support it? A word that you will be terribly familiar with, and we hear all the time these days, is the word liminal. Mm. And we have a feeling for what liminal is. But the guy that's known for kind of creating that phrase is an anthropologist, Victor Turner. And there's another word that goes alongside it called liminoid. Now, liminoid is when you have the rupture, but not the rapture. Wow, right. The liminal is the thing that lifts us into the terrain of angels and beings that wish us well Mm. and make us wise. But actually, a lot of people that will roll their arm up to show you their scars, their art is nothing more than just sticking their pen in the wound and jagging it. Yeah. But actually, the the thing that myth says is, buddy, you can go down to the underworld as much as you want, but until there's a gift, until something is trafficked and passed on, there's no rite of passage in it because a passage implies... It's finite, mm-hmm. but I know so many people, unfortunately, addicted to disorder. And that, for me, is always a sign that they have that, probably that kind of shamanic propensity, but they're lacking what I was just talking about with you, the vas bene clausum, the well-sealed vessel. Mm-hmm. You will know this about folks you meet on the street. They're, they're tuned often to a prophetic frequency. Mm-hmm. And I'll be walking past one of them and they'll turn and they'll say something they should not be able to know about me. Yeah. And then they're gone again. Yeah. I think one of the things I think as well is that um, I wonder if it's got a lot to do with left brain thinking. Because I think that culturally at the moment, especially with social media, or this idea, this seriously overly sort of politicised and constantly radicalised childhood and youth, people are always trained now to read things in terms of uh, um, uh, critique or social justice or or a political stance. And that seems to be so left-brain. That's all very superficial and information-based and things like that. But where we move to a sort of right-brain thinking is when we move towards the unknowing, which can which is an experience. You can experience unknowing. But you, in order to do that, you need to approach things without that sort of left-brain thinking. And I think that left-brain thinking is so prevalent right now even and i see it even in people people will review my books and they review my books as if they are reviewing my ideology yeah as if they are going through my book to see how i treat characters whether i treat them badly or well or what how i portray women or men and and this is not how my books are intended to be read whatsoever this book is not a manifesto it is not an essay it is not a work of non-fiction it is a whole piece it is an entire mythos that i'm inviting you to enter and i'm hoping that i can use language to move you through the other side of it and experience some kind of unknowing but in order to do that you have to let go all these things well what about this but isn't that bad what a trivial way to engage with the sort of the unknown nature of reality. Is it good or bad? You know? 
we we're living in a very complex moment as you will be very aware of as we all are where especially as i said being a dad and being having a teenager mm-hmm. i'm aware of what they call cancel culture mm-hmm. and that kind of incredible attention to you know literacy of the issues of the day whether that's transgender or anything else mm-hmm. and i'm not reactionary to that i i like consciousness in culture changing and being reflective and 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 moving to the good mm-hmm. attending to the grace however i also wonder the one of the most attractive qualities for me in any writer speaker musician whatever it is somewhere along the line i got to see a bit of devil may care I have to say it. I need a bit of roguery. Yeah. I absolutely need a bit of roguery. I don't. I feel comfortable with people who don't project any kind of roguery whatsoever because I don't believe them, and I believe that they are actually um, repressing something. But uh, but what I'm also wary of, Martin, is when you say moving towards the good. I'm very wary of the idea of the good yeah. that there is a sort of objective good that is really good for everyone and is good because every single regime in the history that has done bad, of course, believed they were doing it for good. Yeah, any fanatic, absolute fanatic chasing of goodness will result in a surfeit which will become badness. Absolutely guaranteed. <laughs> yeah, it is guaranteed. Of course it is. The Nazis didn't get up in the morning and thought, let's do some evil. Exactly, let's do some bad <laughs> stuff now. I mean, it, never, no. it never happened. They genuinely thought, let's do the right thing. You know, so this fanatical pursuit of the good, yeah. I find it terrifying. Well, what we're going to end up with is we won't produce books, we'll produce pamphlets. And mission statements. Yeah, well, I mean, talking about the Nazis, and when when you when you when you, um, I don't suppose you have, but if you ever read Goebbels' diaries, they are um, quite jaw dropping, especially in because he's the minister of propaganda. But he comes to this realization that art that's ideological is not art, and he realizes it himself. He's constantly complaining to the people who make films under the Third Reich. He's like, these films are anodyne crap. They are not interesting. You need to make them more interesting. But at the same time, he knows they cannot make them more interesting because they must be ideological and they must fit certain tenets. And even he realizes at that point that when art becomes ideological, it can no longer be art. And not just that, it's no longer interesting. And it's no longer worth engaging with. You know, it's just... Speaking, David, you're reminding me of Bob Dylan, The Gospel Years. <laughs> well, that, wow, that's so funny. I have been listening to a lot of Dylan's Gospel recently. I love really? that era. Oh, I love that era. Now, this is what I think. The moment, and I, I was talking to Tommy Tiernan about this, an album of his, for me, which is just gold, is called Street Legal. Ah, oh, it's one of my favourites. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, amazing. Just amazing. something. Now, in that... He's in card games, but he's producing tarot cards. He's got a cutlass. There's donkeys called Lucifer. (laughs) He's running for his life. He's running a tequila factory. And then suddenly, you know, you might be the devil. You might be the Lord. You got to serve somebody. Now, I like it for a time. And then once Knopfler's involved and the production is getting very, very dry, I begin to lose interest. I was once in a car, I never thought I'd say this out loud, I was once in a car with the American poet Robert Bly, Mm -hmm. and Bly said to me, there is a reason why art schools should remain in cities. And I said, why? And he said, because if you plop them in the middle of a forest, the forest is so overwhelming and so perfect, it can almost sort of deaden creative response. You end up just mimicking it. You know what it's like. You go past a New Age bookshop... And you see a hundred green men postcards 
but there's no green man energy for 100 miles. Yeah. And there's yeah. just something about the trouble of a city that can often provoke something very interesting in the un- unique in the English spirit, or not in the y- English, but the human spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if there's sort of, there needs to be a sort of level of of just sort of even neuroticism going on around you at some points. I mean, when I go end up going up to my cabin, I mean, I don't feel like writing. You know, I don't feel like writing at all because I feel basically happy and kind of contented. You know, I, I probably do need to be around the set in a city to get that kind of stimulation. And it's interesting you brought up Dylan because I've been thinking about Dylan a lot because um, I just did a review of a new biography of him by Clinton Halen. But I began to think that 65, 66 seems to be when Dylan has his visionary experience. The songs start transmitting to him. They're entirely his own songs and this new language. When you listen to the bootlegs, the cutting edge, you can tell that he's running on faith alone. He'll drop songs, he'll go into another one. He's not even given much direction to the group. He's just, he's in the eye of the storm. He's realising that he has this thief of fire, very briefly. But then the question is, what happens to that faith? You know, again, how do you... How do you ground that sort of experience? And the way Dylan went down all the classic cul-de-sacs as well, you know? He tries to retreat. He tries to get back to the country. That doesn't work. He then embraces religion completely, <laughs> absolutely, utterly, and fundamentally because he's still wrestling, I think, with what happened to him. I think you have these creative breakthroughs and he realises that nothing had prepared him for it. And, and he, he, he slags off T.S. Eliot in, in, in favour of uh, Percy Sledge. <laughs> and I think that that, but I th- what I think he's, he's saying is that I thought my type of creativity may have come from written poetry or literature or things like that, but I realise it's much more about a sort of transmission. It's much more about a song that I'm picking up on. So I think Dylan is really interesting that he goes through, or he has been through all these stages. And now he does seem kind of enlightened. When he does these interviews, they're just incredibly gnomic and amazing. I mean, I remember in Mojo... Somebody said some comment to him and said, well, don't you think that's weird? And Dylan responded, well, everything's weird. And if that's the conclusion that Dylan's coming to at the end of his, of his life, that seems kind of enlightening to me. Everything is weird. I think everything is weird. Apparently, Robert Plant was talking to him recently and and uh, they were discussing Planty going on tour with, with him as a support. But he said, I'm a bit worried... Uh, that there'll be too many gigs if I'm on the road with you, Bob, because Bob's been on the road since 88, <laughs> continually. Yeah. And he said, what do you want to slow down for? <laughs> and, and you know, this just he just doesn't have any kind of... Just the fact that Dylan will return to a town he played in six months before, which we all know is commercial suicide, and play a half-filled place. And his logic, his magical reasoning behind it, which I think is really smart, he said, well... I'll lose some of the old crowd, but simply by returning, I'll pick up some new. <laughs> he is one of the extraordinary... End, you know, there's a, there's a reason why there's a river of theory and imagining around mm-hmm. him. There, there really is. I have had the extraordinary, weird, surreal privilege of the last decade of working with John Densmore from The Doors. He's, we, he plays drums, I tell stories. That's wild. How how did that how did that happen, Mark? I was gigging in America. I was in the in the deep woodland of Minnesota, just underneath Canada. Guys were coming up at the end, and suddenly, there's Mister Light My Fire, you know, and I, and I had to sort of take him aside, if you can imagine, yeah. and I said, "Listen, when I left school with nothing and got nothing, I went to work in a factory." 
and with my very first week's pay, which was in a little brown envelope, 75 quid, couldn't believe I had that amount of money. I went and bought LA Woman and I learned to play the drums better because of you. And now you're here. And this is why I believe in the miraculous. This is why I believe in magic. And we, he's, we've become really dear friends. He told me an amazing story. I mean, get this. Uh-huh. The Doors were so famous almost immediately that they were playing Hollywood Bowl and their support band was Johnny Cash. Wow. I can't even take Whoa. that in. We were walking a dog. We were walking his dog called Conch. And I and I I stopped him. I said, you know, just slow this story down and fill me with as many details as my tiny mind can take. Now it was at a time when when Cash, various drugs were hurtling through him, and if he wasn't doing prison time, it was going to be something like it. So we had to pull out. So his replacement, the replacement for Johnny Cash, was Jerry Lee Fucking Lewis. Jesus. The killer. The killer. <laughs> uh, you know, the great orangutan himself, great balls of fire. And John said that backstage, the band slid in but brought no gear with them. They'd all, these were country guys. They're not rockers. And country guys are far tougher than rock and rollers. <laughs> They're far more devious. And so they just turned up and they borrowed all the Doors' gear. Wow. They didn't bring anything. They turned up all, all in one car. They went up to the Doors guitarist, you know, I get Robbie Krieger, and they said, he said, you can have whatever you want. And they said, any Rockaday Fender will do. And they went on, and, and then, the, you know, the Doors had to follow. So anyway, I have found myself in Hollywood nightclubs and various places all over the States with Densmore. I can't even remember now why I got onto him, but what a strange privilege it has been uh, in a strange life. Yeah, you've met some a lot of people I'm very interested in. I would like to ask you a little bit more about uh, Robert Bly because Robert Bly was huge for me as well. In fact, in my novel, Extabeth, there's a little school of, of mythopoetics, which was kind of like a little nod to Bly and a lot of those poets because when I was talking about magic earlier on, I don't regard myself as an occultist, although I did design my own tarot deck and things like that, but people like Robert Bly and these mythopoetic poets meant much more to me in terms of magic or the alchemy of the word, yeah. really, and are closer to how I work myself, even than most, con- than I feel closer to them than most contemporary novelists. So how did you get involved with Robert Bly? Can you tell me a bit about your experience with him? Because he's a fascinating person. Oh, I, I, I can. I absolutely can. I met Bly when I would have been in my early 30s, so I've just come out of living in the tent. But his work, especially his translations of the Indian ecstatic poets like Kabir and Mirabai and mm-hmm. the Spanish poet Lorca, I love it all. Yep. And I hear that he runs a conference. The oldest mythopoetic conference in the world is called the Great Mother Conference. And I thought, I'll get an email, because I didn't have an email. I'll get an email and just see if I can find out more about this. Because as you remember, 25 years ago, contact with America was not like it is now. Yeah. It was phone calls and, and letters. Mm-hmm. And astonishingly, I, I wrote a fairly candid little note and said, I live in a tent and I, you know, etc. This note came back, kind of, you know, come to America, I want to make a fuss of you. Whoa. And I'd been on a plane, but I'd never flown to the States. And I had this experience just as... We were pulling off to the airport. I remember a bird flew into the window and all this 
blood came down and I knew, oh, we're going to be into something big now. There were all sorts of problems actually getting there. There, I, I, a guy tried to, attempted to rob me outside the airport in the middle of the night. I missed a connection, but then suddenly, I really met Bly at this conference. And the, I'll go back to a longer story in a minute. But the shorter story is within four years of meeting Bly, I inherited that whole conference from him, and led it for a decade. Fucking hell! I didn't know any of this. This is wild. It's extraordinary. It's. I was trying to explain to someone, I said, the nearest you can imagine is being a mediocre blues guitarist in Norwich, being adopted by Muddy Waters. It's that <laughs> weird. It's that weird. And so I was brought, you know, as an, as an absolute no one in, in England, Bly said, your face is more beautiful to me than all of Persia. Wow. Wow. And he brought me in and he was a, terrifying teacher because part of the business of being around Bly was you had to be a pugilist you had to be kind of tough like because it. he he'd create extraordinary opportunities for you he'd say you know what tonight I'm not going on or I'll go on later you're doing the first hour so you go out into the congregation of Bly and they just want to eat the little Brit you know, they're, they're waiting for their Norwegian grandfather. So I learnt through the furnace. You know, there are several types of healer in this world. Some people heal with kindness and blessing. Some people heal with a brand. Mm. Bly was that variety. Wow. But I was the last, it's really true to say, I was the last kid through the door before, unfortunately, age, Alzheimer's and things like that took over. But I had a good run with other people. You know, I wasn't the only one, but I, I had a good run of traveling, being around Bly, uh, the psychologist James Hillman, wow. the great translator of Rumi, my dear friend Coleman Barks, uh, and Joy Timpanelli, the storyteller. I was around women and men that took their stuff seriously, were interested in consciousness, and... What I saw, and it's why I asked you that question earlier on, I saw the price tag. Mm -hmm. I saw the strange shape of all of them. <laughs> I recognised my own freak fire, finally. Yeah. When I was younger, I, I longed to be blessed. I didn't receive it at school. I certainly didn't receive it in the factory. I didn't really receive it through music. But Robert did it. And the reason I knew I'd been in the presence of a blessing was that suddenly, finally, I was full and at peace. And I realised what I'd looked for before was an affirmation, which has no medicinal quality. But the blessing is different because a blessing has specificity attached to it. It says, I saw that thing you did and I name it and I raise you up and I bless you with it. So the reality is, honestly, David, I've just been incredibly lucky at a later stage in my life to have a few models of behavior around. Mm -hmm. Bly was the kind of guy, he said to me, he said, he said, if ever in a room people look complacent, if you're giving a talk, just say this, there's a lot of grief in the room. Mm. There's a lot of grief. Mm -hmm. And... The thing I learned from Bly, as I was a younger man, I was quite capable of 
producing enough linguistic helium to get everybody excited, filled with possibility, and uh, yes, we can, like Obama. But when soul enters the room, you begin to hear the roads you haven't travelled, mm. the mood downwards, encounters with the, the yellow teeth of Baba Yaga. Mm. And I didn't know how to get there. I didn't know how to show that quadrant of my psyche until Bly showed me what it looks like. Wow. And so I had this extraordinary apprenticeship. It was Olympian. It was like this little lunatic crawling out of his tent into this Olympian arena. Uh, and then, of course, I'd be dropped off at Heathrow. No one would believe a word of what I'd said or could think that I was walking with the, you know, Galway Canal, the poet. And these were people, you know, this is how amazing it was. You know, very few people know Bly toured Russia with Bob Dylan and Seamus Heaney. What? You imagine that in the mid eighties? Some, some, I know, I know. It's hold the front page. No one knows about it. <laughs> Bly went out on the piss with Pablo Neruda and Ted Hughes. Jesus, that's wild. He was a cultural firebrand, far beyond and before the men's work, and far after. And I tell you, and I don't think it's a great secret. Now, a Sufi. All right. Well. Uh, a Lutheran Sufi, if such a thing exists. Well, you know, I was actually talking about spiritual quest. I was actually inducted into a Sufi sect myself sometime in the early 2000s. So you have to get inducted into the lineage. So you had to sit with the, the, the master of this lineage. And what he did was he gave me a meditation, which was a meditation about finding the heart centre kind of on your left-hand side, down near the sort of bottom of your ribs. And you repeated this kind of mantra where it was, I can't remember the exact words, but... It's like I, I turn my attention to the heart centre and my heart centre turns its attention to the source, you know? It made me think about teachers because you having someone like Bly, that kind of experience, and I, I have longed for that experience my entire life and I, I've never I've never had that. Yeah. And I didn't really have any examples around me because I didn't even know any authors. When it was happening to me, I had no one even to really talk to about this experience or to say, to stand as an example of how perhaps... I could do it, but in a way, I think I have been sort of gifted in my life with a sort of essentially, literally and essentially as fatherless. And I've come to see it as a gift yeah. because I heard this this, uh, this amazing phrase called uh, a bastard wing and birds, it's a genetic mutation, I believe, that some birds have where there's a second strange little wing that grows between the other wing and the term for it was a bastard wing. But I think it allowed birds to fly perhaps higher or in a different way with the addition of this little bastard wing. And I began to think, that's what I've been gifted with. I've been given a bastard wing because I no way I know who my birth parents are or even what they looked like. That I've never seen anyone that looked like me. I've never seen myself reflected in the world ever. But at the same time, I found that a liberating thing because for me it has meant that literally I can do anything because I have never been served with a limiting example, including anyone that even looks remotely like me. You know, I've never had to watch my parents sort of uh, fail or what they did or what they even looked like as they got older. I don't even know what they did. I don't know what their talents were. I don't know what their qualities were. So in a way, I, I, I kind of like, I'm not limited by that. So I've kind of seen this fatherless as being a gift. And, and indeed, I'll, I'll tell you one more thing, because this is during the absolute 
depths of me sort of losing sort of psychic control a little bit over the the writing of these books, being overwhelmed by by this initiatory experience. I was at the the Gordon Byrne Prize. The first book was shortlisted. This is Memorial Day. So it didn't it didn't win it. Denise Mina won. But um, I carried a, a, a call and and a little sewing bag. It's my father's call. He was born with a lucky cap. You know, it, and a call that covers your whole body. And sailors believe that if you're born with a call, that you can never drown. You can never drown. And so sometimes, you know, sailors, they would advertise call for sale because if you kept a call on you, you wouldn't be able to drown. So when my dad died, he gave me part of his call and a little uh, pouch that he'd sewn the, the, the letter D on. And um, after the Gordon Byrne Prize, I was in Durham with my editor and some other writers and we were we partied pretty damn hard, to be honest with you. And in the morning, I looked in my wallet and my dad's cowl was gone. It was gone. It was missing. I couldn't. So I was really, really distraught the next day. And as I went to walk out of the hotel door, I looked down on the floor and miraculously, my dad's call was lying outside the hotel door. What the, What were the fucking chances? But I, I was feeling, I, I'd partied pretty hard. I was having all this, this initiatory uh, experience and something told me that I had to give my father away and let him go and give him back to the world because I'd been having recurring dreams where he was returning to me as a zombie. His body was deteriorating, his beautiful suits were all rotten. And I came to the realisation then and there that it was the force of my love that was bringing my father back and as a zombie and he couldn't be at peace because I kept wanting to come back so the power of love was so strong that I had to let my father go and become one of the dead. So in a state of complete distress, I walked to the bridge next to Durham Cathedral and I took my dad's cowl and I tossed it into the river. And then I attempted to see my father out there and also to let him be one of the dead now. And then I had the most uncanny feeling because then I remembered that it was a cow and a cow can never drown. So then I realised that my father is now alive in every waterway of the world. So I flew to Mexico and I spent the entire time in Mexico visiting every waterway I could possibly visit. And I spoke to my father in every one of them. And I include dirty buckets full of grey water next to taco stands, rivers full of sewage and beautiful lakes. I think that that's probably the place where our Beatitudes must come to an end for now. <laughs> David, yeah. you, you're such, you're a great shining Taliesin of a man. Thank you, Marlon. And nothing and no one is more beloved in myths than the orphan. No one. Wow, yeah. And Rilke says, wherever I am folded, there I am a lie. And when I look at you, I see a man in full wingspan. Wow. So please proceed with confidence. Thank you, Martin. This has been absolutely wonderful. I mean, these are the conversations I've wanted to have for most of my life, but that's what I mean. I've never really, I've never really fallen into the company of other people, you know, who, who felt this way. But the, the great gift I'd say of the past, certainly five years, is I have a whole circle of people who I can talk about this stuff with and who <laughs> have, ex have experienced it themselves yes. and who are committed to it for life. And th it's been a remarkable hookup meeting you, Martin, as well. Your books have meant so much to me. I mean, as soon as I was recommended them, I picked them up from the first couple of pages. I, re I recognise an absolutely kindred soul. They're absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much. You know, as these conversations continue, I'm beginning to realize that the predominant emotion in me with all the people I talk to is primarily to say thanks. 
is primarily to say thanks. So I wish you'd seen David's face during that encounter. I wish you'd seen the, the sheer health of the man. And so in honor of the birthday that's coming for him, I'm going to read a couple of stanzas from Yeats that I started to quote during the interview. He may never hear this poem, but this is the poem that I wish for him as he sits in the glorious stature of his iridescent being. My 50th year had come and gone. I sat a solitary man in a crowded London shop. An open book, an empty cup on the marble tabletop. While on the shop and street I gazed, my body of a sudden blazed. In 20 minutes, more or less, it seemed so great my happiness that I was blessed and could. Thanks to Ben Adicott for producing Smoke Hole. Don't forget to check out my new book, Smoke Hole, Looking to the Wild at the Time of the Spyglass, available in all good bookshops. And bad too. <laughs>